want you to take a Bible this morning. Let's open it together to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 13 in the Old Testament. We're going to be continuing in our ongoing study of the life of the great man of God, David. And if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, how about borrowing one of the copies that we have for you right on the back of the seat in front of you? We're going to be on page 223 in, your co- in our copy of the Bible, page 223, 2 Samuel 13 in your copy. Now, just about everybody in America realizes that what happened at Columbine High School back in April was an unbelievable tragedy. But what most of us don't realize is that what happened at Columbine was all about one singular event and one singular issue. And that issue was the issue of revenge. In an interesting article in the Washington Post just yesterday entitled Dissecting Columbine's Cult of the Athlete, the article goes on to talk about how a school-wide indulgence of certain jocks and, and their criminal convictions, their physical abuse, their sexual and racial bullying, how that intensified the rage on the part of the two young men, Eric Harris and Dylan Claybold, who did the killing. The article tells about how these two young men organized the trench coat mafia specifically to challenge the unbridled power that these athletes had in the school. And how these jocks then went on to abuse the trench coats, how they threw things at them in the lunchroom, how they body slammed them in the lockers in the hallway, how they destroyed their personal property like Walkmans and Discmans. And now quoting from the article, and I quote, what began as rage held inside turned into a vicious plan of revenge. In fact... As the two boys began firing that day, they uttered the words, all the jocks stand up. It was clear in the first hours after the shootings that vengeance against athletes was the preoccupation of the two killers, end of quote. Now, when I read that, I thought, you know, there is an incredible lesson here, and it's not a lesson about gun control. It's a lesson about how deeply revenge, the desire to hurt somebody back when they've hurt you, how deeply ingrained that is in the human spirit. And folks, that's what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about what the Bible has to say, what God says to us in the Bible about revenge, about returning evil for evil, about hurting people back after they've hurt us. Because the passage we're going to look at today is a passage where this is exactly what happens. So a little bit of background. If you remember, after David's wrongdoing with Bathsheba, uh, as a punishment, God said to David, David, you will never have turmoil and chaos leave your house. It'll be with you the rest of your life, your family. And we saw this begin in chapter 13, the beginning of the chapter last week, when one of David's sons, a fellow named Amnon, raped his half-sister, a gal named Tamar, and then threw her away, discarded her like a used piece of luggage. Uh, The girl went on to have what we would call today a nervous breakdown, and her true brother, her full brother, a fellow named Absalom, took up her offense. Verse 22, if you'll look there, it says, Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. But he hated Amnon because Amnon had disgraced his sister Tamar. Now we skip ahead two years and we pick up the story. Verse 23. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor near the border of Ephraim, he invited, Absalom did, all the king's sons to come there. And Absalom went to the king and said, Your servant has had shearers come. Will you, the king, and all of your officials please join me? No, my son, the king said. All of us should not go. 
we'd only be a burden to you. But, and although Absalom urged him, still David refused to go, but gave him his blessing. Now, in ancient Israel, sheep shearing was a time of great rejoicing. I mean, you watched out for the, these dumb animals all year long. And finally, you got a chance to make some money from them. And so they would throw parties. And Absalom threw a party at his ranch a little bit north of Jerusalem. And he invited his dad, the king, to come. And even after he begged his dad to come, David said, No, I'm just I'm not going to do that. And in David's negative RSVP, suddenly Absalom sees the opportunity that he's been waiting for. Verse 26. And then Absalom said to his father, you know, Dad, if it doesn't please you to come, if you're not going to come, please let my brother Amnon come with us. And the king asked him, well, why should he go with you? But Absalom urged his dad, so his dad agreed and sent Amnon and the rest of the king's sons along. Absalom now asked David to please let Amnon come to the party. And David smells a rat. I mean, he says to him, why in the world do you want him to come? I mean, you two guys never do anything together. You guys don't even speak to each other when you pass in the hallway. Why, would you want, why do you want him to come? And Absalom urged his dad, the Bible says, he says, you know, Dad, I know we've had our differences, Amnon and I, but, but I, really, I really want to get past that, Dad. Dad, I love my brother. I really want to be close to my brother. Uh, maybe this party could be the beginning of a wonderful reconciliation between the two of us. Can he come? Guy smooth, isn't he? And so David goes, well, yeah, sure, I guess so. And so he commands Amnon to go to the party. Now, folks, it's been two years since Amnon raped his sister. And during those two years, Absalom has been biding his time, waiting for the right moment when he is going to get Amnon back and the right moment has just arrived. Verse 28. And Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is high in high spirits from drinking wine and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Have not I given you the order? I'm the, the son of the king. Be strong and be brave and do what I tell you. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. They murdered him in cold blood there at the party. Now, let me summarize the rest of the chapter. A word feeds back to David that all of his sons have been killed, not just Amnon. And a fellow named Jonadab, this is the same guy who came to Amnon and said, fake being ill, and that way that's how you can isolate Tamar and get time with her. Same guy. He says, look, uh, David, I, I want to tell you all your sons haven't been killed. And then he makes an incredible comment. Look at the middle of verse 32. Verse 32, he says, this, that is killing Amnon, has been Absalom's expressed intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. Now, this is a very important comment because what this tells us is that Absalom's actions, his murder of his brother, was not an act of passion. It was not a spur-of-the-moment event. Oh, no. No, no. What we have here is premeditated murder, deliberate revenge. What happens to Absalom? Verse 37, Absalom fled and went to Talmai. This is a man's name, the king of Geshur. But King David mourned for his son every day. And after Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years. Absalom now flees the country and seeks asylum from this man named Talmai, the king of Geshur. Geshur was a country that's located northeast of the Sea of Galilee in the country that we know of today as Syria. And you say, well, why did he go there to this guy? Well, if you look back in chapter 3, don't do it now, but if you check back in chapter 3 of 2 Samuel, you'll find it says there that Absalom 
His mother was Mekah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. This guy's his grandpa. That's why he went there. He ran to his grandfather and asked his grandfather to hide him and give him asylum from David. And that's what his grandfather did. And he spent the next three years there in exile. Now, the story of Absalom's not done. There's a whole lot more to come with this fellow. But we're going to stop right now. We're going to ask the most important question. And you know what that question is. So you ready? One, two, three. So what? So what? Right. Lon, so what? What difference does this make to me? Now, you say, Lon, wait a minute, wait a minute. Before you even go on, I, I already know what you're going to say before you even say it. You're going to stand up there and tell me that what Absalom did was wrong. True? True. I'm going to tell you that. You say, but Lon, this guy had a legitimate beef. I mean, he did. Amnon raped his sister, for goodness sake. And then after he raped her, he treated her like a piece of trash. He ruined this poor young girl's life. And nobody in Israel was doing a thing about it. David didn't do anything. No, the guy got away with it scot-free. Lon, shouldn't there be justice? I mean, shouldn't there be accountability for one's actions in the world? Yes, sir. God is a God who is all for justice in society. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, God had already established specific judicial penalties for what Amnon did to Tamar to be handed out by a court of law. And if, a if Absalom had wanted, he could have pressed charges against Amnon in a court of law. You go, Lon, you are so dense. Don't you understand? David, the king, for two years has done absolutely nothing. A Absalom knew. If he goes and presses charges against his brother, David's not going to let that happen. David's going to step in. David's going to protect his other son. Absalom knew the only way he would ever get any justice against this guy is to take matters in his own hands and do it himself. And frankly, Lon, Amnon deserved what he got. He was a bottom feeder. He was the lowest thing on the food chain. And so what's so wrong with what Absalom did? Well, folks, what's wrong with what Absalom did is that he cheapened himself. He lowered himself to do this. And he disobeyed God in, in engaging in personal revenge, in engaging in premeditated vindictiveness and almost vigilanteism. He disobeyed God and cheapened himself. Let me show you where God says this in the New Testament. I want you to turn with me to the letter Paul wrote the Church of Rome, Romans chapter 12. If you're using our copy of the Bible, it's page 804. Page 804 in our copy of the Bible, Romans chapter 12. And this is the most concentrated passage anywhere in the Bible dealing with how you deal with Amnons. What do you do when somebody's do, done something to hurt you, to damage you, to wound you, and it looks like they've gotten away with it? How do you deal with these people? God's going to tell us that right here. Romans chapter 12, look at verse 17. Do not, God says, repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take your own revenge, my friends. Two times. In, in verse 17 and in verse 19, God gives us a very clear instruction. No matter who has hurt you, no matter how badly they've hurt you, no matter how often they've hurt you, even if we feel we have a legitimate beef, even if we feel like the legal system has not produced real justice against them, taking matters into our own hands, carrying out personal revenge, God says, 
is simply not one of the above selections. Not if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You say, well then, Lon, what does God want us to do? Well, folks, what God wants us to do as followers of Jesus Christ is He wants us to take the high road. Look at this, verse 20. On the contrary, the Bible says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. Don't get sucked into it and go down to their level and lower yourself to do what they're doing to you. But instead, God says, you overcome their evil by doing good. See, not returning evil for evil is half the ball game, but actively returning good for evil is the other half of the ball game. And this is exactly the same instruction that Jesus Himself gave us in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Jesus said, if you're my follower, I don't want you fighting fire with fire. If you're my follower, I don't want you going down in mud wrestling with these people. You take the high road. Now, does this mean as Christians that it's wrong for us to seek judicial redress for wrongs that are done to us, to use our rights in the court system of America? Absolutely not. Nothing God says here is meant to imply that if you have a legal case against someone, you shouldn't pursue it. We are not talking about jurisprudence here, nor is this talking about countries engaging in just war. We are talking here about the issue of you and I taking matters into our own hands and carrying out personal revenge, personal retribution, going out deliberately and with premeditation to hurt the people back who hurt us. He said, well, Lon, I, I understand what you're saying. I understand the issue. But I have a question for you. Why should I live this way? This is a hard way to live. Why should I do this? Can you give me any reasons at all other than that God says so? I sure can. I'll give you two. The first reason is this. It's found right here in verse 17. <clears throat> it says, be careful what to, do what is, to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Look down at verse 21. Don't be overcome by their evil but instead overcome their evil by doing good. The first reason why we should live this way, friends, is that by living this way, by treating people this way, we can have an effect upon them for Jesus Christ. Revenge, returning evil for evil, is the world's way of operating. People in the world expect that kind of response. And when you and I as Christians come along and we act differently, it surprises people. It forces people to wonder why we're doing this. Why are we not paying them back when we've got the opportunity? And it thereby creates a platform for us to talk to them about Jesus Christ and who He is and what He can do in their life. I mean, in the clip that we saw from Les Mis, when that priest returned good for evil, it changed Jean Valjean's life for all of eternity. It won his heart for Jesus Christ. And through him, that deed went on to change thousands of other people's lives and affect them for good and affect them for God, all because one person, that priest, returned good for evil. And this is the kind of effect God wants us to have on people around us where suddenly we can win their hearts to Jesus Christ or at least talk to them about the issue because we react differently than the rest of the world around us. Let me say to you, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ in a real and personal way, that the ultimate act of returning good for evil in the history of the world was what Jesus did for you and me on the cross. 
I mean, think of what we gave him. We gave him ungratefulness, disobedience. We snubbed him. We ignored him. We rejected him in many cases. And what did he return to us? We went to the cross and died for us to pay for our sin, to make it possible for us to have eternal life. And the reason Jesus did that, friends, is for the very reason we're talking about. He wants to win your heart. He wants to win your heart. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ in a personal way, I'm telling you what Jesus did for us on the cross is the best deal going in the universe. To exchange our sin for forgiveness, to exchange our eternal destiny for heaven, what a wonderful deal. And I hope you'll think about that. It's the best deal you'll ever make. And Jesus returned good for evil to win your heart. I hope you'll let him have it. Well, you say, Balan, that's fine. I want to be a witness for Jesus Christ. But aren't you forgetting about something here? I mean, what about justice? What about equity? What about fairness? Uh, th- these people did me wrong. And if I return good to them, well, then, they, then they've gotten away with it. They've escaped all justice. Well, that brings me to the second reason why you and I should live this way. And that's this. That, that, that God promises us that He Himself will take care of justice for you and for me if we will just obey Him and live this way, the way He's telling us. Look at verse 19, Romans 12, verse 19. It says, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Now, friends... What God is telling us here is that vengeance belongs to Him, not us. That revenge and payback and justice are God's prerogatives. And it's a good thing they are. Because, folks, revenge and vengeance are not safe commodities in our hands. Only in God's hands. And God makes us a promise here. A promise that He will look into the situation and if there's anything to repay, look what He says. He says, I will repay. I will see to it that what goes around will come around. I'll do that. And it goes on to say in the end of verse 20 that in doing this, we will heat burning coals on the heads of those people that did this to us. Why? Because, folks, God will do a far better job of paying people back for what they did to you than you will ever do yourself. You say, Lon, wait a minute, come on. God's running the universe here, man. He's trying to keep Neptune from bumping into Pluto. You know what I'm saying. I mean, you really think God has time to come down and get interested in the everyday affairs of my life? You think God even cares what's going on in my life? You think God's going to come down and intervene and avenge me against somebody that does wrong to me? He's running a universe. Come on. Oh, I believe this totally. I mean, God, God, uh, you know, avenged David against Saul. He avenged Noah against the critics of his day. He avenged Joseph against his brothers. He avenged Daniel against his political enemies. He avenged Mordecai against Haman. He avenged Moses against Joel Brenner. I mean, God takes care of this. He does this. Look, I've been a pastor for 19 years. Now, when you've been a pastor for 19 years, you get multiple opportunities to live Romans chapter 12. And if you don't believe I've had those opportunities, you come up after the service, I'll pull my shirt up and I'll show you the bullet holes in my back, if you don't believe me. And when people are saying things and doing things and and conniving things and scheming things that are just wrong and evil and nasty and hurtful against you as a pastor, what do you do? 
Well, I'll tell you over 19 years, I have tried to take the high road. I've tried to step back and take my hands off it and say, God, I'm not going to lay one hand on these people. You see what they're doing. You deal with this. And it's been wonderful to watch over 19 years how God, time after time after time, has intervened and done this very thing for me. You stand back and you go, wow, look at that, lightning struck. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Um, Well, I'm human too, all right. And I'm here to tell you that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you will take these people... And you will hand them over to God, hand them off to God, that God will intervene in the everyday affairs of life and He will avenge you too. And He'll do a much better job than you'll ever do. And you'll be above it. You'll be clean. People can't turn to you and go, well, that was nasty. That was slimy. What you... you didn't do anything. God did it. You say, but Lon, you're a pastor. I mean, God sprinkles special wiffle dust on you people to live like this. But us normal people, I mean, how how do us normal people live like this? Well, friends, I want to tell you something. There ain't no special wiffle dust in the world that God sprinkles on anybody. Being a pastor has nothing to do with this. The secret to living this way, there is a secret to living this way. But whether you're a pastor or a plumber doesn't make one bit of difference. The secret has nothing to do with wiffle dust. It has to do with this. The secret to living this way is believing who God says He is in the Bible. See, if you believe that God is the awesome, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, righteous, just God that the Bible talks about, if you believe that God is plenty big enough, as He says He is in the Bible, to take care of avenging all the wrongs done to you, of paying back all the perpetrators... If you believe that God is that size and that He can do it without your help, He does not need any help from you, thank you, then there's no problem delivering people over to a God like that. Friends, the bottom line is, the bigger your God is as a Christian, the more forgiving and forgetting a person you will be. And the smaller your God is as a Christian, the more vindictive and retaliatory a person you will be. It's all about the size of your God. Is He the God of the Bible? If He is, you got no worries. But if you diminish Him and you shrink Him in your own mind, well, then we got problems living this way. You won't be able to do it. Don't shrink God. Let Him be who He is. You know, I suppose if we took a survey in America of who the greatest president in the United States ever was, I, I think George Washington would get a bunch of votes. But I can't imagine anybody ever out, out, out polling Abraham Lincoln. Can you? I mean, I think he'd win every survey. Abraham Lincoln, uh, having read his biography, if you want to read an interesting biography, read Carl Sandburg's biography of Lincoln. I'm convinced that Lincoln knew Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that he was a believer and that he lived that way. But you know, when Lincoln was in office, he was not real popular. As a matter of fact, his greatest enemies were found right in his own cabinet. And one of those people, one of the worst of them, was a guy named Salmon P. Chase. Mr. Chase was the Secretary of the Treasury in Lincoln's first cabinet. And and Chase used his position as Secretary of the Treasury to undermine Lincoln's presidency, to attack Lincoln's presidency, to say horrible things and assassinate Lincoln's character. I mean, some of the slimiest and nastiest stuff imaginable went on in that cabinet. You think Washington's bad today. It was worse then, if you can believe that. No, you can't, can you? Well, it was. 
And as a matter of fact, to show you how bad it was, this guy Chase, while he was still serving as Secretary of the Treasury under President Lincoln, offered himself to the Republicans as a replacement candidate for Lincoln in 1864 for the Republican nomination. He wanted to unseat the guy he was working for. Unbelievable. Well, as we all know, Lincoln won renomination. He won re-election. And right after he was elected in 1864, he was faced with a decision. He had to choose a new chief justice for the United States Supreme Court. And he chose Salmon P. Chase. His friends couldn't believe it. They were mortified. They were flabbergasted. His supporters came to him and said, are you nuts? Are you crazy? Have you completely lost your mind? This is a guy who for four years has worked everything he's got to tear you down, to rip down your character, assassinate your presidency, end your political career. Why in the world would you exalt him now to being Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and giving him a bigger platform if you completely lost your mind? Here's what Abraham Lincoln said, and I quote. He said, Mr. Chase is a very ambitious man. And I think on the subject of the presidency, a little insane. He has not always behaved very well lately, and people say to me, now is the time for me to crush him. Lincoln said, well, I'm not in favor of crushing anybody. If Mr. Chase has said some hard things about me, I, in turn, have said some hard things about him, which I guess squares the account. End of quote. And when asked why he chose Chase to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Lincoln simply said, because he's the best man for the job. Folks, the point here is that true greatness does not come by mud wrestling with people. True greatness doesn't come by going down on their level and paying people back for what they've done to you. All you do when you mud wrestle with people is get mud on you. True greatness comes by taking the high road. True greatness comes by doing what Jesus said and treating people the way Jesus said to treat them. And every one of us here have people in our lives who've hurt us. Every one of us here have people in our lives who have damaged us and people who then look like they've gotten away with it scot-free. Nobody ever enforced any justice in that situation. What do you do with people like that? What do you do with Amnons in your life? Well, what you do, God says, is number one, you don't return evil for evil. You don't do that. You don't take matters in your own hands. Vengeance is mine, not yours, God says. Number two, you take the high road. You return good for evil. And number three, you get yourself free. You take those people and you hand them over to me. Not just physically, but mentally and emotionally. You get rid of them. You hand them over to me. And you get free from the hatred and free from the rage and free from the bitterness You get free. You liberate yourself. And you give them to me. And you go on with life. And you have the confidence, I'll take care of them. I promised you I would. I promised you, I'll take care of it. You take your hands off. Leave room for the wrath of God. And give them to me. Friends, this is what God wants you and me to do. Don't cheapen yourself, my friend, by taking the low road. With a God like you and I have, we don't need to. We don't need to. Take the high road. Take the high road, and God will take care of that person. You can count on it. Let's pray. Now, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to give you just a moment. If there's an Amnon in your life, or maybe a couple, I want to give you a moment 
to do exactly what we've talked about today. To get yourself free. To hand those people over to God. And to ask for God's help in taking the high road. If you're prepared to do that today, why don't you take a moment and make that transaction? Lord Jesus, you know that this is a tough world we live in. People hurt people. We've been hurt by people. And sometimes it looks like people get away with it. And that, that's very bothersome. So what do we do with people like that? Well, thanks for talking to us about that today. Father, my prayer is that you would change our life by what we heard here today. And that you would liberate some folks here today who've been prisoners of these people who've hurt them for months or maybe even years. God, help them turn loose of them today. Not to turn loose of them into no justice, but to turn loose of them into the justice of God. And Father, my prayer is that you would take the people that are, we've prayed about today, take the people that we've given to you today. And Lord, that if there's something to avenge, you would do it. But help us take our hands off and leave them with you. God, thanks for talking to us about real life. Help us with your spirit living inside of us, Lord, to take the high road. And I pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.